Hello everyone and welcome. What do the following two images have in common? I'll give you a few moments to think and share your guesses with anyone else you might be watching with. And if you're listening via phone, one image is of a female American tree frog inflating its lungs and the other image is a rear view perspective of a man listening to something on his headphones while a train whizzes by on the underground. So what is the answer, I hear you say? Well, I'm glad you asked that. The answer is that they are both using noise cancelling apparatus. According to a New Scientist article this month, female American green tree frogs inflate their lungs to dampen the mating calls of other species so that they can pick out the calls of males that they can mate with. And this young man is using noise cancelling headphones to adduce the unwanted distracting ambient sounds so that he can hear the things that he wants to listen to or the things that he needs to hear. Well, what has that got to do with Mark chapter 15, verses 16 to 32? Well, I'm glad you asked that as well. As I read this passage in Mark, I am overwhelmed by the dominant sound of shame and mocking and scorn and insult. It's absolutely everywhere in these verses. And we can't and we shouldn't ignore it, and we'll get to that very shortly. But as I've reflected on these verses, it's occurred to me that there are more subtle and more significant sounds to listen to. What I want to do is to cut through that noise of scorn and shame and insult and get to the signal underneath. And to do that, I'd like to use, by way of a framework, if you like, um, a phrase from Hebrews 12 and verse 2. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame. Taking in reverse three key words from that verse, shame, endurance, joy. Let's look at our passage in Mark 15, starting with the shame. Shame is the dominant noise in this passage. Inside the Praetorium, a Latin word for the Roman governor's palace, the soldiers find a military cloak, the closest thing they could find to the kind of garment that a king or an emperor would have worn, and they put it on Jesus. They then twist a crown of thorns, place it on his head and thump him, and they mock him as the king of the Jews. Then they take him out to be crucified. They would have taken the uh, longest, most circuitous route for maximum exposure and maximum humiliation. Then they strip him naked and nail him to a cross and hang him high for everyone to see. Passers-by hurl insults at him. The teachers of the law and the religious leaders mock him. 
Even those who are crucified with him insult him. So the soldiers, the passers-by, the religious leaders, the criminals who are crucified at the same time, they are all united in their mockery of Jesus. Now people abuse and mock others for all sorts of reasons, don't they? In the famous Stanford prison experiment turned into a film in 2015, volunteers were assigned to be either guards or prisoners by the flip of a coin in a mock prison. Some of the students really embraced their roles, becoming very authoritarian and subjecting some prisoners to psychological torture. The role they assumed encouraged a guard mentality and I can't help but wonder if the role of the Roman soldier encouraged a mentality that led to the mockery and violence we read about in the Gospels. The religious leaders mocked out of a sense of victory. At last they'd got the better of this upstart Galilean who had repeatedly humiliated them and highlighted their hypocrisy. The criminals perhaps mocked for self-serving reasons, out of, the, out of their own frustration and pain. In Luke's Gospel, we read that one of them says, Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. People mocked Jesus then and people mock Jesus now. He's a figure of scorn and shame and fun. That is the dominant noise in this passage. But let's move on now from the shame to the endurance. Did you notice what Jesus says and does while all this is going on? Absolutely nothing. He is a passive recipient of physical and verbal violence. Apart from refusing the wine mixed with myrrh, which would have been offered up as a mild anaesthetic, Jesus is motionless and wordless. Prophesying about Jesus 700 years earlier, Isaiah writes, He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. And when we step back from the noise of the shame and the mocking, we can discern the pulse of Jesus' quiet endurance. Men and women are capable of incredible acts of endurance. In another film based on a true story, Unbroken, American Olympian and Army officer Louis Zamperini survives in a raft for 47 days after his bomber crash lands in the ocean during the Second World War. He's then captured by the Japanese and sent to a series of prisoner of war camps where he and his fellow prisoners endure harsh treatment by their captors. His story is one of incredible endurance to discipline himself as an athlete to survive on the ocean and in the POW camp. 
As a side note, Louis later converted to Christianity and forgave his wartime captors, meeting many of them. He died a few years ago, aged 97. The word translated endure in Hebrews 12.2 is the Greek word hupomeno, which means to stand firm or to persevere. Love, Paul says famously in 1 Corinthians 13, endures, hupomeno, all things. So one of the outworkings of love is perseverance, endurance. Speaking of persecution to come, Jesus says to his disciples, you will be hated by everyone because of me. But the one who stands firm, hupomeno, to the end, will be saved. So out of love for Jesus, men and women and children who have endured, who will endure, will be saved. Paul, writing to Timothy, says, I endure, hupomeno, everything for the sake of the elect, that they too may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. So why did the disciples endure persecution? Why did Paul endure everything for the sake of the elect? Because Jesus himself, out of love for them, endured the cross. Out of love, Jesus endured the mocking. Out of love, Jesus endured the crown of thorns thrust on his head. Out of love, he endured the excruciating pain of crucifixion and the humiliation of public exposure. But it wasn't just love that was involved because we also learned from Hebrews 12:2 that it was for the joy that was set before him that he endured the cross. So let's take a look at the joy. Jesus was motivated not just by love, but also by future joy. So what was this future joy that motivated Jesus? Well, I think three things come to mind. Firstly, there was the joy of his exaltation at his Father's right hand. Quoting Psalm 45 and applying it to Jesus, the writer to the Hebrews says, you have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. And then secondly, there is the joy of the righting of all wrongs and the restoration of all that is good in the days to come. A loud voice in heaven cries, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah. Therefore rejoice, you heavens, and you who dwell in them. And then thirdly, there is the joy of the redemption of God's people. Paul writing to the Philippians says, My brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown. So if the Philippians were Paul's joy and crown, how much more 
with the redeemed people of God be Christ's joy and crown. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory for the wedding of the Lamb has come and the bride has made herself ready are the shouts at the end of time. Let me just ask you what you hear. Spring is sprung and one of its telltale signs is the increase in birdsong. Some people won't notice it, they're absorbed in other sounds, some of them uninvited and environmental, some of them chosen and personal, coming to them through their headphones perhaps. Some people will notice the bird song, but it's a, a general background noise uh, with no discernible voices, apart from maybe a chattering sparrow here or a robin or a fluty blackbird. But others have trained themselves to listen. There's a chaffinch there and a blue tit over here and somewhere in the distance a green woodpecker. And it's not that these people have uh, better hearing, uh, it's not that they are more musically inclined, it's simply that they have trained themselves to listen for certain sounds, to pick out the song in the background noise. So let me ask you this. What do you hear in Mark chapter 15 in these verses? I said at the start that the dominant ambient sound of the passage is the sound of shame and mocking and insult and scorn. Everyone can hear that, it's obvious. I've suggested that when we step back from the noise of the mocking and shame that we can discern the pulse of Jesus' quiet endurance. Some people can pick that up. But I'd like to further suggest that those who have trained themselves to listen can also perceive the notes of future joy. And so, I invite you to do two things as you reflect on this passage in Mark chapter 15. The first is to look through the horror of the scenes as they unfold towards the end of the Gospels and see the Saviour of the world enduring the suffering out of love for you and out of the anticipation of his exaltation and of the righting of all wrongs and of the redemption of his brothers and sisters. Listen for that pulse of endurance and for those notes of joy and give him praise. And the second is to consider your own circumstances. If you're struggling at the moment, or the circumstances of someone else if you're not, and to see in Jesus an example to follow. Jesus looked past the temporary suffering to future joy, and he endured. Paul wrote, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. He looked past 
is temporary suffering to future glory and endured. And then Mother Teresa famously once said, the most miserable earthly life will look like one bad night in an inconvenient hotel. She too adopted a future outlook. Can we do that? Well, it's not easy, is it? But one thing Easter teaches us is that it doesn't end with Good Friday. After death comes resurrection. After the darkest of nights comes the dawn. So let me finish with these words from Hebrews chapter 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let's throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let's run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Amen.